Hi everybody, it's Toby Miller here. Welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. And I'm with my new friend, as you met her two minutes ago at the train station, here in Peterborough, Ruth Dixon. Hello Ruth, how are you? Hi Toby, I'm really good. Nice to meet you. Thanks nice to befriend along. you. Yeah, of course. <laughs> well, these are such profound friendships that we establish so quickly at Peterborough Railway Station, I find. Now, Ruth, you are a performance poet, a public poet, if you like. Yeah. And I wonder if you could just tell us a bit about that. So, in other words, what you're up to right now. Yeah. Share with us about your poetry. Uh, I have your shirt, by the way. Oh, just... thank you very much. It's quite beatlesque, isn't it? I was thinking it is sort of beatlesque. Yeah. 60s, 70s. It's a stack of little pictures of groovy, girly girls of the 60s style people. Yeah, with bob haircuts. With bob haircuts. And it's all negatives and positives reversed and Warholian and with a blue and white and black backdrop for the colouring, it's great. You describe it so well. It's anyway. an e- eBay purchase, but there you go. <laughs> All those things are. Indeed. So tell us about your performance poetry which you're up to present. Okay, well, I've, um, last night I was doing a, a performance poetry show at Hull Truck, which is uh, one of the theatres in Hull. Um, and it's something that I did at Edinburgh as part of a three-week run, a spoken word show, and something I've got into, um, I guess, in the past year or two, um, through my work as a journalist in Hull and meeting what was organically developing, if you like, as the spoken word scene in Hull. I got to meet some of the poets. Mm-hmm. Um, and from there, really enjoyed it as um, an audience member, the um, immediacy, if you like, of spoken word over other forms of poetry. It's very... Well, you, you put a lot of performance into it. It's, it's 3D to me. You know, it's a, It says a lot about who you are and where you're from, and it's a very direct mm-hmm. um, form of art. And um, So I was really taken by it. Um, so were you covering it as a journalist? Yeah. And then got invested in it yeah. as a practice? Yeah. And you wanted to do it yourself? Exactly. And that kind of change, you know, being the audience or, mm-hmm. or the kind of reporter on it, if you like, and then putting myself into that position was an absolute mind change in my head. Remarkable thing to do, yeah. Yeah, one that I wasn't... Um, I don't think you could have anticipated it, otherwise you wouldn't have... I wouldn't have done it. But there were the two poets in particular that I saw, local guys from Hull, who um, I was really taken by, and I invite them into my radio show. Um, Philip Larkin, a great poet, is from Hull, and there was a a big um, 25th anniversary celebration of his death, um, but it was an excuse, really, to have a big poetry festival in Hull, so there's lots going on at the time. So these poets just became regulars on my show and I got more and more drawn in and started going to events in and around Hull. And it then, must have been a nightmare being the librarian <laughs> from Philip Larkin to stop being the librarian. Yeah, how do you live up to that, eh? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, um, what happened was the more I kept going, the more, you know, the, the question was there in my head, why aren't, why aren't I doing this? Perhaps, perhaps I am covering up something I'd really like to do. And eventually, and people were beginning to ask me, you should do it, you should do it, you're a radio presenter, you know, you must have the skills, that kind of thing. And I'd written for years as well. Um, And then eventually, there was a new open mic night that opened up called Fresh Ink. And I only found out about it through interviewing somebody on the radio. And I kind of thought in my head, well, this this is the chance. If I don't take this opportunity where everybody will be new, will be on a level playing field to have a go, I never will. And I did, and from that moment onwards, you were sold. Totally sold. So when you say spoken word performance, 
for me that conjures up because of my aged condition. <laughs> what age? <laughs> a mixture of Liverpool eight or Mersey beat stuff and um, punk slam poetry yeah. and so on. Uh, but I'm sure things have moved on a lot since then and that they're different in Hull from how they are in other places. Exactly. Um, I mean, I guess that's the, the background, isn't it? Sort of the, the Harlem scene and sort of the hip-hop and the slam poetry. Um, but I think spoken word is, you know, a, a still quite a new genre, if you like, and you can interpret the brief how you like to. And, and Hull, I mean, you haven't made it to Hull yet, Toby. We'll get you there one day. <laughs> But it is. I'm on the wrong. <laughs> You're on the wrong. You're on the right route, Norm. It is quite an isolated place. I mean, it's something that Philip Larkin really brought into and, and used to brilliant effect in his poetry. And that has a real advantage in something like spoken word because you can absolutely make it what you want. And that is what's happened in Hull. It's, I'd say it's very different. And going up to Edinburgh this summer with our Hull created spoken word show. You know, some people didn't quite know how to take it, um, but but I develop because I'm in Hull, I think. Mm -hmm. So um, it's less slam. It's it's very real. You know, it's very kind of core of where you are and where you're at, and very truthful, I suppose. But with a lot of, for me personally, there's a lot of comedy in there as well. I think Hull's got a brilliant sense of humour. Um, as I experienced last night, they they knew how to take it. You know, the spoken word, which can be a bit out there, but they get it and um, works for me. How does it relate to the last 10 years of the great popularity of stand-up? Spoken word? Mm. Well, it's very minor compared to the last 10 years of stand-up. I mean, it's really taken off stand-up, hasn't it? Mm. Um, I think some people, you know, you've got a poet like John Hegley, for example, who started off in in stand-up and comedy and you know he's a comedy performance poet if you like so you can very easily cross over genres yeah. um, and some people I think some of the wise people right now are starting off in spoken word experimenting playing around with it making mistakes taking risks then honing it and trying the damnedest to get into comedy because comedy's where it's at. Comedy's where the, you know, the money, the backing... Money, and television, are. prominence. Yeah. So, um, and you know, that, that might work for them anyway. Um, I mean, what I do is, is quite comedy-oriented as well, so that might be a natural progression for me anyway, irrespective. Well, after this podcast, we'll be getting offers from all over the world. Of course, Toby. This is the whole point, you know? The will become even more a world centre than it already is. <laughs> so well Your known. Your brain will become a world centre even more than it already is. I mean, it just takes this funny little microphone. I love it. Microphone, you know, and your words go away. So I wonder if you could tell us a wee bit about some of the themes that you focus on personally in your performance. I, I guess it's, um, it's a journey of my my life where I'm it's, it's literally where I'm at at that moment in time um, and that's what I play with um, whatever I mean I have a book I have it with me today and whatever ideas or thoughts I have or words or anything they go in the book and then it's something I pick up on when I've got a bit more time or I'm playing around with with words and thoughts yeah. um, I suppose my process of uh, going into poetry 
has been a lot of a result of reinventing who I am and my experience as a journalist um, in BBC local radio. So it's, it's been about the ability to express myself um, and say the things I want to say and touch on the issues that I felt constrained by in the past. Or um, just to be truthful, just to just mm. say it like it is. Um, I mean, I love this microphone. I've never seen anything like it before. And I've got a bit of a thing about microphones, having worked with microphones for uh, ten years or so. Um, and one of my first poems was called, um, well, is called, My Microphone, My Rules. Um, and it is about and the fact that now I'm speaking into it the way I want to, I will say what I want. Um, and, you know, recognising the power a microphone can have um, and recognising the fact that if you don't say it how it is, you're missing such a valuable opportunity. You, you've missed the moment. You know, it's right. your moment to seize. Right. But what I found in my experience as a journalist, particularly towards the end, was I was so, so constrained um, by the way things were that I, f I felt... I couldn't say it. I couldn't say the truth in the microphone. Well, yeah. the funny thing about this microphone is, as I mentioned to you before we went on air, so to speak, is that a friend of mine, André Dorce Ramos, Mexican intellectual, who works as an ombudsman for a television station there and also is a communications professor, after we'd recorded on directly onto the computer through the band, he said to me, you know, I think I would have found it easier if there had been a microphone between us rather than just the computer. And I realised that a lot of my interviewees or fellow conversationalists, whatever we call them, were staring at the stupid sound levels on the computer and got quite worried if they saw things going up, down and sideways. And that actually this thing, although I don't think it really enhances the sound quality, <laughs> gives us something between us to look at yeah. or talk to. Yeah. That means I also don't have to worry about positioning the laptop such that you're able to hear it. Mm. By the way, I've just realised I've done a bad thing that I need to see if I can correct. I, this is the first time I've ever made this mistake. You're supposed to make a binary decision about privileging male or female voice, because this is a rock music recording okay. software, and I had, it defaults to male, and I hadn't corrected it. Oh, Toby. So I know. How um, terrible. I know. It's, but then again, okay, it doesn't look like it wants to change. So, <laughs> I'm sorry, my voice is somewhat privileged over yours, but... I'll take it low. Go right, go right down there. Baby. Go right down there. Go right down there. Absolutely, from the bottom of the dial. Okay. Yeah. Deep breathing. Very deep breathing. <laughs> but I do like the fact that it looks like a microphone. I, I hear what your friend's saying. Yeah. And the fact that it has its own little stand. Little tripod. Yeah. yeah. And there's something about aesthetics, isn't there, that... Yeah. I can absolutely. work with that. Yeah, good. So, um... When you say you write about the things that are real to you, that are personal and so on, is it partly about personal history or is it also about politics of the day or the um, state of life in Hull or you know, transport in Hull? Yeah. Is it that sort of set of everyday things? It can be. Um, some of it's about my past. And they're the ones that I, I don't always perform the ones about my past, but they're part of the process of getting the poetry out there to get to the other bits that I will then perform, if you like. Um, I don't know, I, I guess they stem from me and where I'm at. So I'm a mum um, living in a market town a few miles from Hull um, and I work part-time, or I did work part-time, and 
you know, life can be quite stressful, particularly when trying to organise the kids going to school and picking them up at the end of the day and getting stuff done. So one of my poems is called School Hours Breakdown, and that's about the fact that, you know, we might pretend when we go and pick up our kids in the afternoon and meet the other parents that we've had a really busy day and doing all these really important things that need to be done and, you know, got the shopping in and done the ironing, etc., etc. But actually... You know, I've been chilling out and making the most of that time in order to recharge my battery. To be able to cope with the energy that they require and the energy that they require. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, it makes me laugh to kind of reveal that even to myself, yes. that that's what I'm doing. And then to think, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this out loud. Right. And it's great because, you know, now I have a few friends who, when we leave, drop off our kids in the morning, will just say, just going for a school hours breakdown, see you later. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's, I don't know, it's about just acknowledging where I'm at, really, yeah. with life. Yeah. And um, how, I don't know, I mean, the two poets I, I work with and I went to um, Edinburgh with, they're whole born and bred and they've got, you know, the real authenticity and, and the voice and they can say it as it is in the history and I'm you know relatively new to Hull although I, I do um, f feel I belong there uh, I moved there as a, a student when I was 18 so I guess I haven't got that that voice um, and I've been quite transient I suppose um, so where I'm coming from I guess is just me rather than a, a sense of place I suppose. It's interesting isn't it for, for people who are not used to Britain uh, who are listening You've only got to go, I'm sure the linguists have actually counted it, I would say a few kilometres in any direction, virtually, to hear really distinctly different accents. Mm. Yeah. Know, either side of the Pennines, either side of London, I mean, anywhere. Yeah. It's extraordinary, really. And you can, to a certain extent, map class onto those accents, but not completely. True, right? yeah. But certainly place and the resonance of having come from somewhere. Mm. So I guess you see yourself as a whole poet, but not quite the same way as your two colleagues. Perhaps. Exactly. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And you know, um, they do like last night, for example. They can do. It was a celebration of Hull. What, what, uh, this performance we did last night was the 40th anniversary of the theatre we were at. So they could do poems taking the Mickey out of Hull and it's um, and the decline of the fishing industry and and people really relate to it, you know, locals. Yeah. And I guess I'm coming from taking the Mickey out of Southerners. Yes, your accent <laughs> wouldn't necessarily be the one to be making fun of Hull. Well, why would it? Ulsters, Ulsteresses. Right? Yeah. No, you you can make fun of fancy cosmopolitan Londoners, <laughs> and people are going to like that, the rugby league crowd, yeah. the whole Kingston Rovers fans. Oh, you get audience. it, you get it. Yeah, well, this poem I did called Love Life, Love Gilberdyke is um, loosely based on a certain type of people from the south who somehow never quite make it up north, even though, you know, they'll travel to the Bay of Biscay and <laughs> Chiang Mai and Kruger National Park. Somehow the north is completely out of their sort of ge geographical zone. And whether I'm stereotyping or not... Me. <laughs> you were the one looking guilty already. <laughs> no, I've got a friend in Hull, actually. I seriously do. But yeah, right. Do. I'm going to be visiting her and I'll make drop sure by. I'll stop by the market town as well. Okay. Sorry, the poem is about people like me. No! <laughs> <laughs> no. It, it's a bit it's a bit of fantasy going on as well, I suppose. But you know, sometimes you're just looking for the comedy. Yeah, sure, no, no, <laughs> And it works. But 
the fact is that much of the north of Britain, and specifically the north of England, has been completely abandoned by both major political parties mm. uh, in the last 20 years. Yeah. Uh, the Labour Party just regards it as a safe place for votes mm. and doesn't give a shit about it. Mm. And the Tories just tell everybody, if they're being honest, why don't you move to the South East? That's where the yeah. jobs are. What's wrong with you? Yeah, yeah, you, you, yeah there, there is this sense of abandonment, if you like, mm -hmm. um, in Hull. And until the Humber Bridge was built, geographically, it was so isolated, people never, there was no need you know, to travel up that way and go to go via hell. It's not the sort of place you need to go to to get anywhere else. Yeah. Um, it's stuck out on a limb. So, you know, each to their own in a way. Um, but that sort of feeds you as well, as you know, creatively, I suppose, because you can just get on with it and you can interpret it how you want. Um, and if people don't come, sort of their loss, I suppose. Uh, I guess the flip side of that is you know, culturally there is stuff going on, but in order to develop, you do need to feel what's going on out there, and um, you know, in terms of comedy and spoken word, and sometimes I feel, I find it very difficult to find things to go to, to kind of feed where I'm, where I'm at. You know, I did go to Edinburgh for the full run, and that was brilliant, and you know, I just soaked it up. I, I performed every day, but I was taking in at least two shows a day as well, just to kind of have those moments where I can absorb and that's how I, I work because of where I live, I suppose. I go off and take it all in, then go back, and it's just like isolation for a few months. And then you can process it and put it into art. That's the idea. Yeah, that's the idea. Now, um, how does one learn to be a poet or to write poetry? Did you have any mentors? Or did you study any of this? Or did you read lots of it or listen to lots of it? Or is it something that just sprang from you? I wrote, I always wrote, yeah. always wrote. Um, I think, I think perhaps I lacked the ability to, I was quite a shy person um, and lack, lacked confidence when I was a child. Although I was very outgoing with friends and, and sort of that outlook, I found that the way to express myself was to write. And again, without me realizing it, I wrote, I always wrote, in the good old days before email, when you wrote letters, I always wrote letters to my family, to my grandparents, to friends. We were always just messing around writing notes and letters. And I really sort of expressed myself through that. And, and then when I took some time out to go travelling, and there was, there was nothing else in the way, that's what it felt like, I just started sort of processing where I was with that, and it became kind of developing into words and lines and poems and thoughts and ideas and and I came back with a book of, of poetry that I'd written and you know again life got in the way I got a new job settled down had a couple of kids and so it got cast to one side but it was like something that was waiting to happen um, and it wasn't until I sort of found found the time again that that re reinvested and, and throughout that time I suppose I'd seen people perform and I, I'm interested in other poets, performance poets particularly, people like John Hegley and mm. John Cooper Clarke um, and I read as well and I, I like comedy so I, but th there was nothing formal you know I've not got any academic background in poetry um, and I'm not saying that doesn't cause problems but there can be quite a division on the sort of the academic creative writing master's degree approach to poetry 
um, compared to hip-hop, slam, spoken word poetry. Um, but as long as you're cool with that, you know, you just say it as you say it, don't you? That's, that's what I do. Sure, sure. And now, the reason I found out about your work was because you sent an open letter to George Entwistle, mm -hmm. who is the new Director General of the British Broadcasting Corporation, that in part was a letter announcing that you were becoming a performance poet as your major professional activity. Mm -hmm. But was also about your experiences at the BBC. I wonder if you could just tell us a bit about that letter, and then maybe mm. tell us a bit about your journalism as well. Would yeah. that be all right? That's absolutely fine, yeah. yeah. Um, I wrote that letter to George Entwistle um, in the last few hours of my career as a journalist at the BBC. It was literally on my last day. Um, and it was about the facts. It wasn't, I guess, announcing that I was off to be a, a performance poet, but the context to that was um, I was taking voluntary redundancy, which was through personal choice. But part of um, the problems I'd experienced in, um, in my journalistic career evolved around the issues of sexism um, and some of the statistics that I'd been keeping an eye on because Radio Humberside, where I worked, had um, had for the past year an all-male lineup, so male presenters, between the hours of 6am and 10pm every weekday, which I thought was, wasn't right, you know, it, it wasn't diverse. And when they removed the final female presenter from the airwaves, I just questioned that in my own head, and I thought, is this just a one-off? in this radio station, what's going on at the other 39 radio stations. And that's when I, sort of the bombshell hit me, that this, this pattern was emerging right across BBC local radio stations across the country, that there is this massive contrast between female and male presenters, in that now every single breakfast show is presented by a man, a, a solo male. There are six that are co-presentations. I'd say 80% of the output you will hear a male voice only. Um, and I just wanted to, I found it very difficult, although people were understanding when I'd taken that hire within the BBC, I felt it was still going on. Even, they, they were perhaps saying, well, we are doing things about it, but it, and it was getting worse. And I thought this was my chance to say it, to just say, seize the moment and say what the stats were, how this was, you know, out of order, um, and a tiny bit about my personal experience in that, you know, I'd, I'd struggled as a female presenter, and I'd struggled with the thought that my career might be petering out a bit, and I had to find something else. I really, literally had to reinvent myself, but in actual fact, it's probably the best thing that happened to me. So, um, so I wrote it and sent it off, and then, yeah, put it, up, put it out there on the World Wide Web to... Um, and it was great to get the feedback. It's great to have people like you get in touch. So, tell us a bit about your story with this, and maybe you could start out for people not familiar with this background by explaining what local radio is in Britain. Okay. What these 40 or 40 yeah, there are 40, stations are. Yeah, um, obviously there's national radio in Britain, like Radio 1, 2, 3, 4, etc. But also within the BBC, there are 40 local radio stations which have a you know, regional area across uh, the country um, and broadcast their own programming throughout the, the weekdays and weekends. 
and um, Radio Humberside is the one based in Hull that would pump out, um, well it reaches about over 200,000 listeners, um, a you know, geographical area of um, East Yorkshire and Northern Lincolnshire, so quite a, a wide area. And um, it's, I guess it's got a much more obviously local identity and a very loyal audience who, um, who tune in and um, presenters who are quite familiar to the area as well. And I started out 10 or 11 years ago working at Radio Humberside. I started off as the co-breakfast presenter. Um, well, you began as a breakfast presenter? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and what was that like at the time? Did it feel okay being a woman doing that? Yeah, it felt fine. Yeah. Um, it was good. It, it, I mean, it was a great learning curve for me personally at, at that time. You know, I hadn't presented before. Uh, it was great to have the opportunity. Um, staff went for friendly. It's a great place to be. Um, and the output was mixed. You know, it was diverse. I co-presented the show after me was a female male co-presentation, co and so it was. It felt even, and I, I learnt a lot. Right. Good. And then you started doing more field work journalism. Uh, reporting. Reporting. Yeah. Yeah, I did. Um, I guess um, I started... I worked part-time, and it's very difficult to obviously have a presenting role when you're, you're part-time, so I, I opted to do more reporting. And that's my background, you know, getting out there and reporting, meeting people, doing this very thing, inter interviewing mm. people. Mm. And I love it. You know, I absolutely... I love, I love meeting people and I'm just a people person, I suppose. And it's weird being on the other <laughs> side of it. It's really weird. Journalists are the, you're not a prime example of this, but journalists are the most difficult people I, uh, to interview. I'm not good. Because <laughs> not their good. basic line is, I'm not the story. I mean, that's one yeah. of the first things you learn. Yeah. That despite whatever new journalism might have incarnated, fundamentally, you're not supposed no. to be the story. No. The other person or the other problem is the story. Mm. Exactly. And so to then make myself the story, which is what I've effectively done, um, feels very strange. Sure, sure. But getting back to that sexism issue, mm -hmm. uh, there are some big, big stories that are very related to yours uh, that are frothing around the BBC at the moment. One, obviously, is uh, the Jimmy Savile mm. child abuse, rape, violation stories mm. about her former BBC radio and television presenter who appears systematically to be engaging in sexual violence with very young people over decades, some of it apparently done at the BBC. Mm -hmm. But then there is also, again a gender related topic, the issue of very large numbers of women experiencing sexism in that organisation, mm. particularly through age, mm. through the idea that a man can be virtually any age mm. and be on television, in particular a woman can't, mm. but also through what is in many ways the BBC's flagship radio programme nationally, which is the Today Show, mm -hmm. where figures keep coming out to the effect that, you know, one-sixth of interviewees are women, one of the presenters is a woman, one of the producers is a woman, and it's just a male bastion, and the argument is, well, we're meant to be covering the power centres of society, and the power is exercised principally by men over others, and so that must be our focus. But um, Ed Whistle, to whom you wrote your open letter, 
has said that one of the principal things he wants to address is gender issues in the organisation mm. and create more opportunities for women. But at the same time as he says that, he appears to be saying, but of course I have no real say. Mm. I know. He obviously, in his first week as Director General, which was my last week at the BBC, he obviously was saying all the right things. He did say it in the first week that he wanted to see more women and more female contributors on the Today programme, on the flagship Radio 4 breakfast show, as you say, um, and that he wanted to see, because there's only one female presenter on that compared to four or five or six male full-time ones. The next recruit, he wanted to be a woman. And that's my experience of the BBC. You know, you, you can't deny the statistics, can you? If they're there and it's, and it's that unequal, then you have to acknowledge it and you have to say, that's clearly wrong. And you know, diversity is one of the core values of the BBC. But what they actually do about it is a completely different matter. So did, did you see things become worse over local radio over time? It sounds to me as though at Humberside and perhaps some of these other stations, they've gotten worse. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, now it's an all-male presenting lineup. Can't get worse than that. I listen sometimes to Radio Leicester because that's when I was born. Mm. And the, the, the programmes that I listen to are always men. Mm. I don't know how, whether that applies right across the station or not. But it, it is a problem, I think. And you can't let it fix itself. You've got to take purposive managerial action. Mm. Right? Yeah. But in terms of your reporting, once you've gone away from presenting breakfast mm. and doing reporting, mm. did you find that the stories you covered got decent exposure? Did you find that you were assigned stories that were women's stories or any of that sort of thing? No, I'd say that was pretty pretty equal. Um, I reported for the breakfast show as the as the early reporter, so whatever the job was, the job was, if you like. I did continue to present a weekend radio show, um, and I was fast, I think I was the only female presenter left um, at, the, at the radio station when I did that show. Um, and I found, I found it very difficult to keep hold of you know I felt I was a bit in, in isolation here and and some of the routes I was going down in terms of my interest or human interest and that kind of thing weren't you know weren't picked up on in a kind of direct way but it was this kind of it was all a bit odd if you like and there's just this sense sometimes it's very difficult to pinpoint sexism or isn't it um, but there was just this sense that I wasn't working, you know, what, what I was doing wasn't working for the station, which was no different to what I'd done before. Um, you know, and when, when you do tune into radio stations, you do hear men all the time. The morning show um, is, you know, historically more the kind of woman's hour, female-oriented, human interest, if you like, show. But now, on those 40 local radio stations, 34 of them out of the 40 are presented by a man and I've heard men interview men about how to buy the perfect bra or issues around abortion or stillbirth. And it's, it's just shocking that there's not a woman's voice in there. And I can't understand how nothing can be done immediately to change something like that, rather than say, yes, it's wrong, we need to discuss these issues. 
And what's your experience been of your former colleagues since you resigned and sent Georgie Porgy Pudding and Pie your little note? I was going to say rant, but I didn't mean that. I'm sorry. That was forming in my mouth very embarrassingly. No, but I mean, what I, what I read uh, and admired is a very prescient and important critique. Have you had any reaction from the guys? From the guys? Yeah. No. I have from the girls. Ah, what have the girls <laughs> said? I'm not asking you to name names. Yeah, oh, they're really supportive. Yeah. They, um, they understand, they get it. I mean, you're, you're caught, aren't you? When you're in a career and you're just trying to keep things going and, you know, times are difficult economically at the moment and you want to hold down your job and there's cuts to the BBC, particularly in local radio, it's very difficult to say, hold on here, this needs to stop. So although I did get support, it wasn't, you know, shouting sure, support. Sure, 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 no, understandable. People have to protect their yeah. Um and, But I got a bit from, from the guys as well, but since I've left, no. <laughs> and Entwistle himself, has he replied? No. No. My, um, my BBC email account has been left open for a month. So the, the, the opportunity is there. Now, in terms of reading this, can you direct people perhaps to your website, where, which is one of the places where I can find the letter? Because it is a very interesting letter. It's got data. It's got personal experience. And, you know, it makes its case very cogently. Where would they find it on your blog? Yes, it's on my blog. And if you go to Ruth E. Dixon, that's D-I-X-O-N, .co.uk, that's my website with my blog with the letter on it and a lot of my poetry and, and poetry films. And yeah, well, let's go back to that in, in, in a bit. I, I'd, I'd love okay. to hear, uh, have you speak more about the website, but I wanted to make sure folks could gain access Thank you. to the letter because that's an important thing. I was talking to some MA students about your situation this week about the letter, actually. Uh -huh. There was a lot of interest. I have had some interest through. from... Um, from students, um, somebody's going to base their BA on on my letter. That, Is that so? Yeah. That's very good. And there's another um, student from Liverpool who interviewed me, who's 46, doing a broadcast journalism course, which is the qualification to enable you to go into broadcast journalism. And she's been told by her local radio station probably not to bother to apply because there won't be any jobs. And she's like... What's the other thing worth mentioning, that under the previous Director General, Mark Thompson, there was a move radically to cut down, cut back, even eliminate parts of local broadcasts. Yes, yeah, yeah. But you guys have a very loyal audience yeah. that really reached out, and it's said that a lot of those people are older folks mm. uh, who want something very local. Yeah. And folks who need to know about local traffic and yeah. what's happening with the burst water main at the school. Snow. So, when, when it's snowing, that's when you get your biggest audience for local radio. Right, and these things just aren't going to be delivered by the commercial sector. No, no. And the, the cuts were going to be huge to local radio as a result of the renegotiation of the BBC licence fee, which meant it was frozen until 2017, which meant having to make 20% cuts, equivalent to £700 million. So, you know, Mark Thompson and his consultants were working out where these cuts were going to be. Um, and the decision was to radically cut local radio. So there was a real sense, and we, I'd felt this for, for a good few years, that in terms of the BBC and sort of higher up the uh, food chain, there wasn't a great deal of, 
I don't know, pride, if you like, in, in what was going on in local radio. But the audience saved us, if you like, and the chairman, yes. um, Lord Patton, came in and said, no, we can't make these cuts, so the cuts were halved. I mean, I, you know, my story's completely different. I wanted to get out, so I got out under these cuts through voluntary redundancy. But, you know, local radio is, is so valuable to, to the audience you describe. Did you ever see much of senior management? Did they come and visit? I think they did. I think they did. Um, I didn't personally. Um, <clears throat> I work part-time. And I don't know, maybe... Maybe that's part of who I am. I don't. I just don't get involved in in any of that. I just crack on with a job, if you like. But but they did. They did visit. They did visit. Well, going back a little bit in terms of your journalism, and then I'd like to conclude by going forward into your poetry and performance. Journalism is a profession that is going through remarkable change at the moment. Mm. What would you say are some of the shifts that you've experienced in what decade you were working as a journalist? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, there is this phrase, journalism. Journalism. <laughs> journalism. Um, I think because of, in local radio, because of the, these cuts and, you know, excessive cuts of staff and resource, it's a bit of a conveyor belt now. Um, you know, there's far fewer reporters on the ground, original journalism, um, connecting on the streets at the grassroots yeah. and bringing that in. Um, and there's much more sort of sharing of resources. And personally, I think there's sort of a lack, lack of creativity in the way we approach journalism in local radio, although I'm sure they argue the toss on that. Um, and I, I don't know, popular culture, sort of the, the obsession, isn't it? <laughs> with um, popular culture nowadays, what do, what do people want? I mean, a few years ago, I think we went down that, that route more um, of entertainment, of celebs, but since these cuts and the BBC has looked at um, how it's going to deliver quality programmes, it's, it, this plan was called Delivering Quality First, it's gone back to kind of, no, we need the journalism, we need you know, to, to really focus and invest on that. Sport plays a big part on local radio as well, and that you know, sort of was the sport journalism side of it. But I'd be interested in your views on this as the, the social scientist. Well, how do you think it's Well, changed? I think all those things are very real. Also, and this again refers to the underlying political economy, but a bit more in the private sector, the fact that so many for-profit media organisations are now subject to the same sorts of tests of Wall Street or City acceptance, acceptability, than was the case in the past. So you know, many, many media organisations were owned by families who were in private hands, let's say, or were just parts of corporations. Now they're expected to be able to deliver the kinds of returns on investment that can compete with any other particular practice. And the idea that there's something special about the media and the culture and the necessity to have an informed citizenry is secondary to whether or not there's an opportunity cost by investing resources into, for example, journalism as opposed to entertainment, as opposed to widget manufacturing, mm. right? So those pressures of publicly traded companies have had a very deleterious effect on journalism 
in the United States, where I'm most familiar, a lot of what we're told is that this is to do with technological change. Mm -hmm. And of course that's relevant too, but again it's about certain choices that are made. When you mentioned the necessity to husband resources and double up and so on, I think about people working for organisations like the BBC or NBC or CBS, where they may be doing pieces for radio nationally, pieces for radio internationally, mm. pieces for the web, pieces for different bits of the web, mm. MSNBC, CNBC, NBC, mm. CNBC Asia, CNBC Africa, CNBC Europe, etc. etc. Mm. Writing things to be read for the first time in their lives, they've always been speaking journalists, mm. talking to camera, talking to radio. Mm. And often doing all these things without having a producer, without having a sound recorder, without having a camera operator, because now they're all those things as well. So many people are confronting situations where their jobs have suddenly seen a trebling, a quadrupling of outlets, and a trebling, a quadrupling of responsibilities mm. in terms of the technological delivery mm. program. Even as they're going through these remarkable political economic pressures, either the freezing of the license fee in the case of the BBC, other threats to funding for many public broadcasters and in the private sector, the sense of the loss of a shared public mission because of the desire increasingly to float media organisations on stock markets and regard them in the same way as any other investment. I, you stop spending money if it's not bringing in more money than other things you could spend money on. Mm. Right, so to me all those factors are, are relevant. Mm. And then of course there's fear. Journalists are afraid of redundancy, irrelevancy. Here they're afraid because of the Leveson inquiry which is a big inquiry into the way, essentially, that tabloids have pursued the private lives of both public figures and private figures, mm -hmm. and broken the law, it appears, to do so. Uh, so I think a lot of people feel very on the run, actually. Mm -hmm. So yeah. there's a fear of it, but I see. Yeah, I certainly agree with the stretching of resources and the need to be everything now. You know, the, the radio journalist, the TV journalist, the sound person, the camera person. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a big ask. <laughs> so now that you've made this shift to the web, yeah, tell us about your website and tell us what that's going to mean for your poetry and maybe your journalism. I don't think your journalism days are completely over. Well, I use my blog, I suppose, to write. You know, yes. I don't think I don't think they're over um, either. By the way, I loved your post the other day where you said. Um, so far, I am the only person to have visited this. <laughs> I love that. That's <laughs> hysterical. Oh. I, I, I did visit it as well. Oh, thank you. As long as it wasn't registering. No, well, I, no, but I read it after you visited, so yeah. look back. I'm okay. There. I should be there. And if I'm not, it means your numbers are much bigger than you thought. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, this is all experimentation, isn't it? I mean, yeah. social media is where it's at. It's clear. The fact that I'm speaking to you now is the result of you seeing that email yep. through my blog out there on the World Wide Web. So I've got to, I've got to get with it, basically. Um, and it's my platform for my poetry, ultimately. You know, if, if, if and when I go viral with one of my poems, it's obviously going to be through that. I don't think it's going to be through performing at some open mic in some pub with some scat 
talent scout there picking me up and thrusting me into the limelight. You're going to be halfback for Hull Kingston Rovers. <laughs> You've got all the moves. Got all the moves. So um, it's a big part of where I'm at with my poetry and it's been a massive learning curve but I really, really love it. Um, my husband's the one who do, does my website. Oh, does he? Yeah. What's your husband's name? Pete. Pete. Yeah. yeah. And um, big shout out to Pete. Big, I know. Thank <laughs> you, Pete, because you know he does a great job, and he just we work on it together, and it's so it's it's completely how I we want it because he he inputs with ideas as well with my filming and my poems as well, um, and. Unlike resourcing it out, I can I can change, get it changed just like that, and we can tinker with it all day long if we if we want. So um, and it, it's a platform for my poetry films. But it's Twitter and Facebook and all that though as well, isn't it? Tell us about the films, which I haven't seen for some reason. I don't know how I've missed them. They're on the um, front page of the website. Yeah, They're, I stick them on YouTube, but you can see them on the front page of the right. website. Um, well, they're part of the the, th the 3D side of my poetry, if you like, in that um, I, I record some of them and, and play a little spiel out or a little story as part of um, as part of the poem. I mean, one that's on there is called "I'm Going to Be Famous at 40." Um, so I've got a year to go yet, Toby. So th thanks for helping us along the way. It's all part of the process. Well, you've seen the way the crowds have gathered around <laughs> us here in the John Lewis Caf in Peterborough. I know, not even an old school friend has noticed me. <laughs> walk straight by. Baby, who was very moved by some of the things you were saying. Oh, really? Oh, I didn't notice that. Thank you. You liar. <laughs> um, but yeah, I guess I mean that's that's playing out the fact that. You know, fame's a young person's game, isn't it? And and what creates fame? Why is somebody... Are you familiar with Katie Price, Jordan? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I'm familiar with... Well, yes, that she, you know, she has this sort of very sculptured body. She yeah. has a, a very disabled child, I yeah. think. She yeah. writes books, but maybe she's written more books than she's read. Yes. <laughs> Ghost written, I think, as well. You've got, you've got it. Um, you know, why, why is she sort of the pinnacle? Why is sort of the celebrity culture the pinnacle of what we should aspire to, as opposed to sort of Mother Teresa, if you like? And I guess I took that to its extreme with with Famous at Forty, and decided through the post process of my film, which I do semi-naked with fish and chips all over my body on a table, as my way of saying I'm going to be famous at forty. I kind of just play with play with the notion of what what's fame all about. Why why do we want fame anyway? Surely it's the byproduct of. Did you have I mean all the grease from the fish and chips on your body? Yeah, I had mushy peas. Mushy peas. Yeah. And was it hot? No, it had gone cold. Was that disgusting or better than hot? It, well, I think it was more disgusting actually because it it didn't look so good. I mean the. The cod looked a bit congealed. <laughs> As the actress said to the bishop. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, you should watch it. See what you think. See if you can notice. <laughs> I, well, I, I'll be looking for the mushy peas. Can you explain to listeners outside this great culinary culture of Britain what mushy peas are? Oh, well, it's, uh, it's a must with any fish and chip supper. I mean, fish and chips is big in Britain, but in, in Hull, you know, we, we pride ourselves on our fish. So mushy peas is one of the... Uh, side dishes, if you like, that you get with the uh, fish and chips. Instead of broccoli? Instead of broccoli, yeah, you can, you can have gravy, you can have curry sauce, or you can have mushy peas. 
But um, why are they mushy? What makes them? <laughs> why are they call that instead of just peas? Because they're in a kind of sauce, aren't they? They're, they're, aren't they tins? Marafat peas. I mean, they're absolutely hideous. I, I wouldn't dream of eating them. I think the fact that you don't want to eat them, but you're happy to wear them, is really saying something. And my husband dipped a chip into it as uh, as we filmed right. it. it. Yeah. That's doing something for your art. That's big. So how does that? <laughs> that that's making some kind of comment about popular culture, mass culture, and, yeah, and, and women's bodies as well. Yeah. It's using the using the aesthetic, I suppose. I mean, I do that with my poetry. It's it's about the power and the beauty of of it all, if you like, as well. That's just as important. Um, I mean, that that poem was prompted by the fact that I went down to do an open mic in London, and I happened to be sitting at, in at a table just like this, eating my tea, and a, an elderly lady came down and sat next to me, and we got talking, and um, she was. Uh, very, she'd been a very successful writer, but she was struggling to get a publisher interested in anything these days um, because she was too old. That's that's how she felt anyway. She was she could she couldn't penetrate the market anymore. You know her background didn't seem to matter in this. It seemed to be the Jordan, the ghostwriter, written more books than she's read effect that gets you published. So, so we just laughed. We just laughed about the fact that. You know, it's quite difficult to to get back into that and to be cut off, not from the fame thing, because the fame is the byproduct, but to be cut off from what you want to achieve because of your age. So I just played with that idea. Yeah. That's yeah. it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, as far as the future's concerned, do you have plans or are you letting things happen? Because this isn't a career in the sense that it's a career having children or it's a career mm. being a journalist, mm. or is it? Does no. It feel oh yeah. It feels it feels loose, if you like. Um, it feels like I don't have concrete plans, and my way through this is to let go. You know, just to ex experiment, and I'll experiment with the blog. Uh, poetry killed the radio star, which was always the name I was going to have. But how how it evolves and emerges is how it will be. You know, I'll just play with it. And whether an idea for um, a spoken word show comes from that, that's that's the thought that's going on in my head. Um, keep writing, keep performing, um, and keep making films, and just just experiment. There's no there's no plan other than fame. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But seriously, what would you like to be the effect of your work? I guess affirmation. Affirmation of what I'm doing and what I'm about. Um, and the continued chance to do it um, and to try and earn a living out of it would be nice. Um, to, to be creative and to get myself out there, to to show that it is possible, really, you know, after my experience that I can reinvent myself and it is who I am and it can work. Mm. And where does locale come into this? Just getting back to the whole question. Mm. Location, location. Because of your accent, mm. you're typified as being from the South East, mm. probably. Mm. So, 
how does that work in terms of either being able to say I'm a Hull poet mm. or being able to say my poetry belongs to everybody? Given that performance is so important as a part of this, your voice is so important, mm. and you could be heard as, being t as talking about these experiences in a much more general way or in a very specific located form. Good question. I think that at the at the moment my I've I've come from Hull. At the moment, I went up to Edinburgh, as I say, and did the show with two Hull poets, mm. and we were the Hull spoken word scene. But ultimately, it's where I'm, where I belong, where I live, is my process to write. is is, is the place where I can write. But I don't think it will be specific to. Oh, and clearly with my voice, it's, it's not going to be, I don't think. And what about conventional publishing? Do you have any interest in that? Well, not in terms of... Yes and no. I've, I've, I've written a book um, which is about my experience of reinventing myself and um, journalism. But I've no idea how to get it published. I've written it. It's there. It would need a lot of editing. Um, my poetry is performance. I, 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 I don't often read written down poems, and I can't imagine mine working in a book. Although I, I write some children's poems, which might work. But I have no idea about that world. So it's one of those that's over there. Somewhere over there. Yeah. So when you get up to perform, are you memorising things? Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 a performance, I, and I I really relish that side of it. Um, I love acting. I love getting getting in the zone and and all that. So it's really important. I I know the words inside out. Sometimes you know <laughs> I mess up, but I try not to. What about improvisation? I love improvisation. My radio work was improvise. You know, when you're a radio mm. presenter. Um, I love improv. I love it, um, but it, I, I, I don't know. I think more that will come into my stuff more at the moment. I'm just finding my way with the poetry and performing that and learning it and getting that yeah. sort of snappy. Um, and when I can merge the two, that's when I'll be hopefully. Well, I, I'll, it'll feel right for me wherever I go with it. Well, Ruth, thank you so much for spending your time with us today. Could you just say your Ruthie Dixon website address again? Yeah, of course. Thank you, Tuto. It's nice to meet you. It's um, Ruth E. Dixon, D I X O N, dot co, dot UK. And also, you can, if that, seems, if that for some reason seems difficult, Poetry Killed the Radio Star gets you to the blog, right? Yes. Well, one of the, there are a couple of blogs you've got actually out there. Yeah, some listing my gigs and press stuff, but Poetry Killed the, the Radio, Radio Star, Star, yeah, is the yes. blog. And available for BA Honours Theses to be written about her career at the BBC, <laughs> <laughs> as well as her performance poetry. One thing I'd love to extract from you, if I could, before going, is uh, an undertaking that you'll come back to the pod and share with us again at some point in the future your experiences uh, with mushy peas <laughs> and all the other things in your repertoire. Would you do that? With that microphone, how could I refuse? <laughs>